1: Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
2: This is Victor Vigiani speaking from the Zoomer studios here in downtown Toronto. Welcome to the show. And as you know, or may know, that uh, Richard's not here tonight. He's apparently in Brantford, Ontario with his, uh, his sons and it's dark enough outside I guess so he's apparently watching a pyrotechnic display in Brantford. So, uh, but then he said he'd be listening so I'm not sure if he's got a little handheld radio or something while he's watching the fireworks but um, we know that Richard is on some kind of assignment tonight and uh, he'll be there I guess next week to tell you all about it. Anyways, welcome to the program. Once again, my name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett, and I want to tell you something, that the, the reach of The Conspiracy Show has been extended. We just got news, at least I just got news this afternoon from Richard, that Asheville, North Carolina is our new affiliate, and apparently next week on this Conspiracy Show, Asheville, Carolina will join us, and so we want to welcome we will be welcoming all of our friends in North Carolina to the Conspiracy Show next week. And it will be uh, a very fascinating time for them, and we know that uh, Richard will do a great job to reach out way down south. Tonight, we're talking planetary experiences, extra-planetary experiences. Later on in the show, after midnight, we'll talk to Thomas Stryker, who's written a fascinating book called... Extraplanetary experiences uh, talks about people who've been off planet in one way or another, and uh, I know it's a it'd be a fascinating title to explore later on this evening after midnight. But before we get to that, we are going to be talking with Bryce Zabel, and uh, Bryce Zabel and Richard Richard Dolan have teamed up to write an absolutely incredible uh, tome called A.D. After Disclosure. The People's Guide to the World After Disclosure. And these two got together and uh, wrote this incredible story about what the world is going to be like following the government disclosure of the extraterrestrial issue that confronts us all. And we've got Bryce on the line, but before we bring him on, what I want to do is just introduce the fascinating uh, uh, curriculum vitae this man has. He has created five primetime network series, notably the NBC's Dark Skies, and one of my favorites. It was released on DVD in 2011, and he also wrote and produced the Sci-Fi's first original film, Off Official Denial, about Majestic 12, and worked on the development team on the Spielberg-produced abduction miniseries, Taken, another one of my favorites. In 2008, uh, Rice received the WGA Award for writing the Hallmark miniseries Pandemic. He's also written multiple studio scripts, receiving credit for two produced films Atlantis and The Last Empire and Mortal Kombat. Zabel was also elected chairman and CEO of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, and he's been on the award-winning PBS investigative team as a reporter and on-air CNN correspondent. Bryce Sable, welcome to The Conspiracy Show.
3: Victor, it's great to uh, to be talking to you right now, and, and um, I, I'm getting over a little feedback here on my microphone, but uh, let me just uh, get beyond that.
2: That's fine. You just work can, it out there. Can
3: you guys hear me all right? Is that
2: right? You're coming through just absolutely great.
4: Okay. Yeah. All right.
3: You know, yeah. the one thing uh, – the one credit I'm very proud of that your own listeners may care about is uh, I also created ENG, which uh, was a big show in Canada for a number of years. On oh, CTV, uh, right, yeah. And, uh, and I was very – that was the very first script I ever wrote in my entire career. And uh, God bless the Canadian uh, television industry for putting it on for so many years and giving it such credit. So I'm uh, I'm very appreciative of that. So I, thank you for having uh, me. I, you know, I'm thrilled great, to be here.
2: Great to be It's I guess they can identify a great thing when they see it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, you know, they always say here in Hollywood, write what you know. And I had been a TV news reporter at the time and a CNN correspondent. So I wrote about what I knew, which was television news and um and now I guess I'm writing about UFOs a little bit, so I don't know how much I know about that, but that's certainly what I'm I'm taking off on. I just want to give one shout out, by the way, to my uh, co-author of AD After Disclosure, Richard Dolan, who today is celebrating his 50th birthday. So go, Richard.
2: The big five zero. yes, I saw that on Skype this afternoon. We tried to do muscle him in here uh, for this evening, but uh, I guess Karen had other plans for him, so uh, you and I are going to have to carry the ship tonight. In, in I any am case, thrilled yeah. to
3: do that. Sometimes it's so hard, you know what it's like booking guests when you try to book multiple people at the same time, you know, we have more ways to communicate with each other than ever before in history, and which only makes it more difficult sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the world is unfolding in a really, really different and bizarre kind of way with all of the things that are going on in technology and, you know, government establishments and, and all of that, and it's, it's tough to put it all together sometimes, but what I want to do is I want to really kind of get into this book that you guys wrote. The Let's first, do it. Yeah, I, I was in Rochester last January, and so I spoke with Richard. I did a presentation in Rochester to his group, and I spoke with Richard at length afterwards about putting this book together. And it was a, a, an absolutely huge enterprise you guys uh, put together. But um, what brought first of all, what brought you two together to do this thing, and how did you manage to create the consensus necessary to create um, the after-disclosure concept?
3: Well, it's one of the greatest creative and intellectual enterprises I've ever been involved in, and I'm I'm thrilled to be partnered with Richard on it. But here's how it came about. Originally, uh, as just simply in my capacity as being a producer here in Hollywood, I, I read Richard's first two books, UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 1 and then Volume 2, and uh, had optioned them uh, to try to turn them into a television series or, or to exploit them in some way. And the more Richard and I got to know each other, we started talking about this issue of disclosure and how we both wished that there had been a great book for us to read about it. And we realized there hadn't been one written. There had been 50,000 books written trying to prove UFOs are real and going over the case studies, et cetera, but not one about what would happen after we acknowledge that they are real. So – uh... sometimes you have to write the thing that you want to read because nobody else has done it and richard and i came to the conclusion that that's what had to happen with uh, AD after disclosure and it was a fascinating process because richard as you point out lives in rochester in new york and i live in los angeles so we we actually wrote the whole thing on google docs and and for about a six-month period uh... almost on a daily basis richard and i were getting on the phone saying well what do you think will happen in the economy what do you think will happen with the military what about this what about that and as we chased these ideas around we realized that in in essence we were writing the rand corporation (laughs) report for what would happen after disclosure and it at first that was intimidating but as we went forward we said to ourselves our goal here is to stimulate discussion not to act like we are the end all or be all of all authorities so we decided to be very specific to take a lot of chances and risk a lot and hope that it would uh, be the kind of uh, document that would cause people to to reach out to other people and and start this uh, national and international dialogue so that's that's kind of the long and short of the whole thing
2: mm-hmm. well in in reading the book and i've i've read it twice now uh, the first edition um what fascinated me about it is literally every single paragraph every single sentence is an absolute gem and and especially towards the end of the book when you get into the last uh, two or three chapters the, the the selection of words and just the way you put the language together each sentence uh, that I read, and as I read it, it was a challenge to say, "My goodness, where do they get that from?" And, and one of the things that really kind of got me is, are the little vignettes that you put in just yes. before the um, um, just before the, the beginning of any the chapter. There's one of them there that I just sort of cite right now on page 96 about you know, Senator Bentley, chairman of the National Commission on Extraterrestrial Secrecy. So you you kind of prophesy that this might eventually be the case. Where did that idea come from?
3: Well. Uh, first, what Richard, uh, uh, the thing I would certainly stipulate right now is by the time Richard and I were done with Google Docs, it was hard for either one of us to tell who had written what, uh, in that we, we trusted each other enough to write on top of each other. But- Initially, our take was that Richard was a historian and and Bryce was a journalist and a and a dramatist, and we should try to fuse all these experiences together into one book. So the vignettes uh, that that go between chapters were simply my attempt to do what I've been trained to do, which is to try to put some flesh and blood on on a on a idea and try to make it feel. Very real and authentic, so you could see at a ground level how it how it might all turn out. And the one that you specifically mentioned uh, was a transcript for uh, a Senate committee hearing. And, and in our view, uh, after disclosure, uh, you you could say, "Well, it's such a big story. I mean, my goodness, it's it's all about these others and why they've come to Earth, etc., and and so forth." But In our analysis, we kept coming back to no matter who these others are, we're still going to try to integrate that experience through the ways that we have looked at the world historically. And certainly, even though the U.S. Congress has missed the boat in a big way over the last six or seven decades and hasn't done the job that it was supposed to do, after disclosure, that institution and those politicians in Congress will be falling all over Mm -hmm. themselves to conduct hearings. So we, we sort of said, you can see the future in the past. In the past, you had Senator Sam Irvin and the Watergate committee, and you had Senator Irvin asking almost every witness, what, uh, what did you know and when did you know it? So we thought nothing less than that will happen for disclosure, that certainly there'll be a lot of posturing, there'll be a lot of investigations, and, and we don't believe that any disclosure event is going to start with full disclosure, so it's going to have to be done as it historically is done, dragged kicking and screaming from the mm-hmm. body politics. Okay. So that's why we wrote that. And we thought simply including the transcript, you know, in a way, uh I have a great fondness for the one that you just brought up because it feels to me almost like that great scene from The Godfather where uh you see Michael Corleone being asked what uh, you know his involvement is with organized crime. Right. We're going to have to make some decisions in a post-disclosure environment about whether we're going to arrest people. Are we going to give them amnesty? Are we going to pardon people? What are we going to do to these people that have kept this secret all this time?
2: Well, you bring up some really good points. Uh, We've got to take a break. We'll be back with more about After Disclosure with our guest, Bryce Zabel. I'm Victor Vigiani. Stay with us. we're talking about an infinite universe we're talking about technologies that can get us there faster than the speed of light very very quickly this is humanity's future and it's not in 10 generations time and in 30 40 or some ridiculous year like that we're talking about our generation the voice of eli priest a physicist and researcher in this whole Field of UFO studies, um, Eli raises several really important issues about the now of this situation, Bryce. Um, what better time to disclose this than when the world is in the situation that it's in right now? Uh, I, I can't imagine even in history things looking as, as as dark as they do right now in terms of the economy and and the way um, things are happening in Syria and and all of the the, the very. Uh, I don't know, discrepant things are happening on the planet these days, and what better situation could help in clarifying the situation with respect to the UFO uh, ET phenomenon than some type of disclosure. Uh, w- what I wanted to ask you about uh, is the word, the others, you, in, right. the, in the book. It kind of hit me several times before I realized, why did you choose that particular word rather than aliens or some other kind of euphemism uh, f- for the others? How did you come up with that concept?
3: Well, we thought long and hard about that, and we went back and forth, but our our, our thought was we wanted to make it uh, as accurate as possible, and the truth is, uh, even though lots of people have lots of theories about who they are uh, and where they come from, uh, n- none of them... Have necessarily been proven at this point. So, for example, they could be extraterrestrial, they could be ultra-dimensional, they could be time travelers, they could be angels and demons. There's a lot of different people with a lot of different interpretations. The only thing that Richard and I were sure that we could rest our uh, case on was that they weren't us. So, if they weren't us, they were the others. And we just felt that was a safer place to start talking about this from because. Obviously there are some people out there in the human race who have a better grip on what exactly is going on than than you do or I do or your listeners do and that's because they've deliberately you know kept this secret to themselves for a number of years so they may know uh who these others are uh but we can only speculate at this point so we tried to keep it uh in a in a place that felt respectful of the ultimate uh possibility that they could come from a variety of different places, and by the way, they, they don't have to be a single species or a single entity. Uh, it may very well be, and it may have already been demonstrated to people besides myself that that the united not the United States, but the 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 world the 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 human race is a very, very interesting place. It may be that intelligent life, wherever it expresses itself in this universe or the multiverse, is worth uh observing to other intelligent uh species and so we may ultimately find out that the truth uh, when it is revealed uh, in any way uh, is is that uh we are very interesting and numerous different others have been here over time so we'll see
2: well let that's, uh, that's very interesting the, the thing that i i also uh pick up on quite closely and, I, and this may happen when people read the book is the distinction between disclosure And that's a whole big political, um, I guess, leap that has to happen, and this thing called contact. Sure. Uh, Just talk to us about those two concepts for a second. Well, let's
3: let's take a step back and and try to uh, do a little definition of terms here. We chose the phrase A.D. uh, to differentiate uh, the calendar. We think that the, the actual admission that something's going on, this disclosure moment, uh, Will cleave the calendar as no other event has uh, since. Uh, obviously, it's been used for in, in the Christi- uh, Christian Christian um, religion, but we think it's the kind of thing that the calendars were meant to be divided on, and it's such a such a big issue. But let's try to define disclosure first, so we can find out why that makes it a, a difference. Uh, there are lots of people who talk uh, about disclosure as it relates to UFO slash ET reality. For our purposes, we wanted to make it as simple as possible. So basically we're saying that disclosure is when somebody in a position of authority could be a president, could be a prime minister, could be a Chinese premier, could be a pope. But somebody in a position of authority uh, confirms, if you will, that some of these craft that are flying around in our skies uh, are from someplace that isn't here and they're made by somebody that isn't us. And that simple acknowledgment uh, is where we think the calendar uh, goes from one place to another. So we, we see human history being divided as the B.C. world, which is the before confirmation reality, to the A.D. world, which is the after disclosure reality. And so w- what we've tried to do is, is take a look at, at how simply making that public acknowledgment to ourselves will change things and and. And we think it will change everything. Uh, it, it, obviously, people said after nine eleven it changed everything, but it didn't really. We we sort of pinged back to our our basic uh, way of looking at the world. But we do think that uh, disclosure that we are not alone, and not only are we not alone, and they're not just out there in the vast reaches of space, but some of them are here, is a pretty radical thing, and is going to change society as we know it.
2: Oh well, yeah. Now, moving towards uh, that initial concept of them, whoever that might be, admitting that there is something going on. I guess the, the the who and the what they say will be very very important.
3: Right. You were asking about contact. Yeah. I kind of missed out on that. Let me. Uh, I, I think. Well, first of all, it seems clear that some form of contact has already occurred. We're just not privy to all the details of mm-hmm. it. Obviously, uh, contact is ongoing. It's just not widely discussed in the body politic as, as being contact. But uh, certainly, uh, someone who's been abducted uh, has no qualms about calling that contact. Uh, the, the question is what kind of contact and under what circumstances – and and – Clearly, Richard and I, as we we kicked this back and forth, started thinking about all the different things that that, that come into play, and we we each looked at it from our own respective uh, points of view. I started as a journalist, as you pointed out in your introduction, and so one of the things that I was taught in journalism school is the purpose of, for example, a broadcast newscast. First and foremost is to answer the question: Are we safe? In a local newscast, that could be: Is there a hurricane coming, uh, and and what do we need to do about it? In a national newscast, it would be: uh, Is war imminent? Uh, but basically, are we safe? There are some questions that have to be answered about this this issue of contact that people will demand certainly after a disclosure event, and that, uh, in addition to are we safe, uh, the only way to look at it and tr- try to define this contact is to say. Who are they and what do they want? Uh, so these others will have to be identified, if we can, as to who they are. But more than that, what's their agenda? Why are they here? It's one thing if uh, if, uh, you know, if they're like E.T. and they're cuddly space scientists that have traveled the reaches of space to come here and observe us and, uh, and take a look at our flora and fauna. Uh, and it's another thing if they've come here to eat us. So uh, agendas account for a lot and the thing that i think is frustrating for people who actually think about this issue is that there must be people out there in uh, the the various uh, agencies and so forth who have a better handle on what the agenda is than we currently do but they have, for reasons that that are known really only to them right now have decided that uh, this contact needs to be buttoned up and not discussed in a public way And uh, ultimately, Richard and I believe that even though they may want to do that and have done that for six or seven decades, we are rapidly reaching a place where disclosure doesn't have to be a top-down disclosure of this reality, uh, but that it may be bottom-up, that we are more technologically sophisticated than we've ever been, and we may reveal the, the the reality of this contact to ourselves going forward.
2: Yeah, the good explanation. I often wonder myself. With, I think about the backroom discussions that are going on regarding disclosure, be it at the the Pentagon or the CIA or the White House or wherever they talk about these things. And uh, my sort of estimation is that you know how is this going to play out? Uh, what are we going to do? What's the plan for it? Uh, is it the right time? Should we do it? Should we not do it? What are the implications—economic, religious, philosophical? Uh, all these discussions are going on. Uh, and and on the other side of that coin, I'm not. I sort of wonder about what the discussions are, if there are any, among the extraterrestrials themselves as to what they might do in terms of that. Well, and is there a confluence between those two?
3: Boy, is that a good good thing to think about? I'll, I'll tell you something, uh, Victor. As I as I consider this issue. Uh, and and Richard and I kicked it back and forth, and as we were doing it, we tried to say, okay, there's a lot of unknowns. Solving this equation, if you will, of what's going on, has too many variables in it, too many unknowns. So at the end of the day, the, the, where you have to start is what can we actually say with with clarity? And the one thing we could say with clarity is that there is one thing that has bound together these others over the years, and the secret keepers or the managers of this secret. That both sides have agreed on that you can't question, and that is, it should be a secret. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Uh, the others have had the ability from the beginning to end the secrecy. They could have done what any number of aliens do in in uh, movies and television shows. <clears throat> they could have landed in Central Park. They could have blown up the White House. They could have staged some kind of incontrovertible thing where everyone would know who they were. But they haven't done that. They've had ample opportunity. They clearly could have done it, but they have not done it. Uh, and from our point of view, th- those people who have been either classified or, or involved in this uh, secret and its management over the years have also had the ability to call a news conference anytime they want and tell us everything they know. But they haven't done that either. Right. So the the thing that we must all focus on is both sides in this equation have decided, that the public doesn't need to know about this right now Mm -hmm. and i've been thinking about this and writing about this for as long as i've been in entertainment uh and and certainly that first science fiction sci-fi channel uh, movie i wrote official denial was all about disclosure but dark skies which you mentioned Mm -hmm. 20 hours on nbc Mm -hmm. was completely dedicated to to the debate about on one hand the majestic 12 character thought that the people couldn't handle the truth and on the other hand the uh, the new recruit into the organization felt the people had a right to know
2: okay stay with us Bruce yeah. uh, rather Bryce, and we'll uh, we'll be back talking after disclosure with Bryce Zabel I'm Victor Vigiani stay with us
1: take a look around what do you really see This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, on Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
4: There is an error in the equations, and we have figured it out, and we now know how to travel to
2: the stars, and it won't take a lifetime to do it. It is time to end all the secrecy on this, as it no
3: longer poses a national security threat.
2: You recognize that voice, Bryce?
3: I do indeed. Our <laughs> I, I, birthday boy, I, I, Richard Dolan. That's
2: right. I had to get him in somehow.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, listen, he is one of the prime voices out there, and certainly when it comes to historical understanding of this this issue, the secrecy, particularly the secrecy mm-hmm. that's been involved in it, he is the man
2: for sure. It, it, both of his books, I read. Uh, you know, the initial um, National Security State, Volume One, and then naturally I, I followed up with with two and as an educator myself a former teacher and elementary school principal um, and I do some teaching uh, of of older students and I always thought to myself if I ever wanted to go to university and start a degree course on all of this stuff uh, those two books would be the uh, the primers for for both courses
3: they would be must must reads for anybody and they still are yeah
2: there's nothing like it Um, Richard uh, mentioned secrecy let's just talk about that for a second the The way the secrecy has played out, the way it was started, uh, the anomaly in my mind is, uh, you know, when when the crash of forty seven happened in, uh, near Roswell near Corona, uh, the first response was the truth, and uh-huh. then a little while after that, that's when the whole cascade failure regarding secrecy set into place. Number one, how has that secrecy been, become so entrenched and so well-guarded and so well-maintained and it just turns into an ab- abject silence after a while? How, how has that happened over 60-some-odd years?
3: Uh, I think it was a lucky break for the secret keepers, to be honest with you. Uh, let's go back to 1947. Uh, we had just defeated Hitler uh your country my country and and a collection of countries had defeated this this vast evil and and suddenly uh we're in the middle of a cold war and in the middle of that uh, drop uh drops this uh, crashed craft and these cadavers and uh that's kind of a problem for people and rightly so i believe president truman said why don't you boys get a handle on this uh before we Go public with it once you guys look into it. So I think they, they probably did, and there was a lot of disinformation during World War II. We had to, uh, we obviously we used disinformation for D Day as an example. Mm-hmm. So they went back to the playbook and said let's let's put some of that in 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 effect so that we can uh, study this better. Well, what they did is they put in the twin pillars of secrecy, uh, uh, denial, and ridicule, and I bet. And I would bet money that if you were to ask the early secret keepers how long they thought that this could actually work, they would have probably said five, ten years max. And uh, then the secret would be out of the bag, but, but at least we would have had a time to get in charge of it. But what has happened is denial and ridicule have turned out to be such effective uh, uh, options for keeping something uh, hushed up that the secret keepers themselves obviously encourage keeping the secret but we do a lot of the work for them if you think about it uh, I've always called it the drunk uncle syndrome uh, when someone actually shows uh, any interest in ufology in a in a normal conversation or at a party or at a dinner uh, conversation or something, uh, people kind of give him that look like he's had one drink too many, mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of a it, it becomes kind of a, a tittering laughter kind of thing about that person, and that's because well, the the denial uh, the the official denial of the of the truth coupled with the the ridicule of people that dare to ask questions about it has been so incredibly effective that it continues to do the job even today even in the face of what i would call profound and convincing evidence so that's in my view how it's happened and and i don't believe that the people who are managing the secret are preparing behind the scenes to come forth with it i think they're probably in it for the long haul as long as they can hold on to it but the truth of the matter is our ability to perceive where we are and where what's going on is increasing uh, exponentially and they won't be able it, it'll happen sooner than later that's all i would say
2: yeah. it's almost become its own religion
3: it has and and I, it, it's it's very interesting uh, and it and it's it's certainly been unfair where we should have been putting our best minds uh... to work on this problem we've instead marginalized a lot of our best minds and and caused them not to be able to express the natural curiosity they might might have on this topic and that's really sad i'm a big believer that all of us together are smarter than any one of us and so therefore when when I realize that the way that we've set up our ability to analyze this uh, this relationship that we have, and it is a relationship of one kind or another with the others, uh, the the way this relationship is analyzed currently is by very few people, uh, because the the need for secrecy is so extreme. These these very few people are put in charge of looking into it. Wouldn't it be better to level with everybody. And if it's uh, if, if there are negative parts to it or unknown parts to it, wouldn't it be better to have the best minds of the human race uh, all collectively working on it and, and, and trying to bring some closure to it? So I, I think, uh, as I said earlier, you can look at it as the people have a right to know or the people can't handle the truth. I've ultimately come down on the idea that uh, whatever the reasons for the secrecy were at the beginning they are now outdated no matter what the truth is it's time to put those cards on the table and let the best minds that the human race has available look into it
2: would not that be the natural evolution of all of this to have a responsible, mature uh, dialogue about the development of the relationship that we eventually one day have to carry on with whoever the others are. I- essentially, it's going to happen one day, and the human race is going to have to, uh, it, first of all, admit it and then deal with it as a, as a, as a mature civilization. So w- at what point do we become mature enough to actually handle that and express well, it ourselves
3: Victor, I think we're mature enough to handle it right now, but that doesn't mean the political system is ready right. for it to happen uh, by design. Uh, it's probably going to be triggered by by some kind of uh, uh, constellation of events all working together. Uh, we go into a lot of that, although we don't have a crystal ball, but certainly mass sightings, well-recorded, coupled with, uh, for example, uh, WikiLeaks and, and deathbed confessions and, and you know, that kind of stuff all coming together with the media taking finally a new interest in things could, could, could precipitate what will happen. We, we do think, and we say this several times, uh, what was once impossible is now inevitable. It was impossible uh, a few years ago or a few decades ago to perceive that this this uh, secret could ever be openly discussed. But now you look around at it, and it; it is inevitable. Although I'm sure you get asked the same question, I get asked. People want to know, well, when's it going to happen? Mm-hmm. I'm not the youngest guy around. I'm not the oldest guy around. And I still would say uh, I would bet on it happening in my lifetime. Uh, I'm pretty pretty sure that it will happen in my children's lifetimes. And I think the sooner it happens, the better off we'll all be. But, I, but you know what? You remember the movie uh, Dr. Strangelove mm-hmm. where uh, General Buck Turgidson uh, played um, uh, or, or rather states uh, regarding a nuclear war? He says, I'm not saying we ain't going to get our hair must. And that's kind of how Richard <laughs> and I look at this. Yeah. <laughs> Disclosure isn't some panacea. It's just a necessary thing we have to go through. And it doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that cue the angelic chorus and and all our problems are going to be solved yeah. it doesn't mean that at all of course. it just means that we are going to begin to look at our problems in a larger context in a reality that will allow them to uh, to be looked at and not all of these issues have anything to do with the others one great idea from a disclosure would simply be if, if somebody's flying something around in our skies very fast that's the size of three cruise ships uh, then they have a technology that's not working on gasoline so just knowing that and and admitting that to ourselves would cause our best scientists to get to work on saying well whatever they got we need some of that ourselves
2: D- don't you think that there has to be a, a collection of scientists at some in some place on this planet who a understand that idea that these craft are not you know they don't stop by the local Exxon uh, station someplace and, and fill up uh, right. that there is an energy source there that's extremely arcane highly arcane and that it could in one way or another benefit the planet now the oil interests obviously come into play um, but that where would these scientists fit into coming forward and say listen we've had enough of this we know the the truth about free energy and, and, and quantum physics and all of that and this is just how it might work can we not give them some space to talk about this
3: it would be great and i would like to believe that could happen but if you if you look at what has really happened is uh, this denial and ridicule has caused for example uh, if you're an academic who wants to study this base uh, who wants to study the the whole ufological issue no, you you can't get money for that and, and you'll be scorned. Uh, the media has become uh, just completely ridiculous in the six or seven decades by just totally getting this story wrong time after time after mm-hmm. time. And they won't easily switch over either. So yeah, I'd like to believe that there are people that, that would talk about this, but instead what I hear often, and I'm sure you do too, are those sort of anecdotal stories where people will admit at a dinner party that uh, they know this to be true and you say, well, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you say something about it? And they shrug their shoulders and say, like what? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, this is bigger than me. I'm not able to do that. So I, I just am very concerned that uh, this is not something that is going to be overcome because it's the right thing to do. It'll be overcome by circumstances. But again, at the end of the day, what Richard Dolan and I argue in AD After Disclosure is that this issue was hushed up by one generation then it got turned into an object of derision by the next generation and now in our generation it demands to be heard straight up and that's that's just as clear as we can make the mm-hmm. statement we're not saying that it's going to be easy we're not saying that we're smarter than anybody else we're not saying that, that the people who have uh... who have managed this secret have been uh, evil people or unpatriotic or or anything we're mm-hmm. just saying Time is up, and now it's time to get on with the next stage. But that will, that will take some time. It will take some courage from certain people. And uh, the process will not be without some bumps in the road.
2: After the break, uh, Bryce, I want to talk about amnesty. Okay, we'll just uh, think about that for a second. And uh, we are talking with Bryce Zabel, co-author of A.D. After Disclosure, A People's Guide to the World Following Disclosure. And uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. I'm Victor Vijani. Stay with us.
1: In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 Or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740
2: Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett, who is on assignment tonight once again.
3: And uh,
2: on the line from, uh, I guess, you're in, L- you in Las Vegas? I am in
3: Las Vegas yeah, right yeah. now. I hope no one takes too much from that, <laughs> well, I'm normally in Hollywood, uh, out in Los Angeles. Well, what but happens I'm there? Now.
2: And what happens there stays there, I guess. Right? That's it's, what it's, we it's, say. <laughs> um, in in chapter six, which fascinated me to no end, you you talk about the the concept of blowback. And you you list a whole bunch of things, you know, there's, what have we got here, we got the Great Panic over one year, and you talk about dancing in the dark, and the fire spreads, and they're all extremely um, elucidating, uh, you know, commentaries on where this thing is going, and eventually, you get to the idea of the secret holders, and over the years, and, and the amnesty that... Probably and pardon that has to come into play at some point, because these people have been handed the gauntlet to carry forward a secrecy from before and before that and before that. And then they've had to carry this through. Uh, What kind of amnesty or pardon do you think is going to be demanded, I guess by the public, I would imagine, after this thing comes down?
3: It's an interesting question because uh, the answer, of course, to this question and many other questions that could be asked about disclosure would be that depends because there's always a lot of variables in it. But I think we can make a few statements. Uh, it, clearly, uh, crimes of uh, have been committed in some regard in terms of keeping the public from knowing certain things. The question is, uh, what what were those crimes? And are we prepared to arrest people for maintaining this secret and keeping us in the dark? And if we are prepared to arrest them, are we really going to put them in jail? And that decision will be made at the time and not by you and I on this this, this program. But there are some things that I believe people will be thinking about. First of all, there's some precedent. Uh, as we talked about earlier in the program, you could have congressional investigations, the who, are, you know, uh, what did you know and when did you know it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We might also have truth commissions like South Africa did uh, after apartheid to try to uh, heal the nation because clearly the world will need to be healed from the secrecy. Uh, but as you look at some of these people, you're going to have to ask yourself what are we going to do about it? If the president himself was part for example using the United States as a metaphor if the president himself was part of a criminal cover up in this then that person could go to jail or be impeached uh, if on the other hand the president was as d- in the dark as many people seem to think he or she will be at the time uh, then the then that person could actually take some action uh remember that uh, Gerald Ford pardoned president Nixon to avoid putting us through a protracted debate about Nixon's crimes that would have prevented us from actually moving forward i think that is actually something that i think has some merit the the people who are in charge whether they be in canada or the united states or in europe or asia wherever they are uh will have a choice they can uh, let the outrage of the uh, of the public be played out against people who kept them in the dark and lied to them. Or they can, for example, offer them some kind of limited uh, immunity so that they can come forward and speak the truth about things on the idea that the healing of the truth is better than the vengeance of the uh, – of actually – Bringing charges against somebody, I tend to think that argument will win the day. Think about it. Also, during the Vietnam War, uh, a number of the United States uh, uh, young men who could have served in the war actually went to your country, and Jimmy Carter in 1975 pardoned them, not because he felt they didn't commit a crime or they shouldn't have uh, been been involved, but because it would be a healing thing for the nation. I tend to hope that what will happen as we go forward in an AD post-disclosure world is that we will try to move forward and see the future rather than look at the anger of the past. And there will be anger. I'm I'm quite certain that people will not be happy that on something of this magnitude that they were lied to. And I I wouldn't be surprised if you see a million people marching on Area 51 and and things like that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it is time for some of our political leaders at that point to step forward and try to help us move forward rather than move backward and I think that's where I come down on it.
2: That's great analysis. Uh, um, I often think, and I think you bring this point up in the book towards the very end, you talk about other countries and you you cite Brazil uh, as, as an example and we know that different countries have sort of quote unquote released their UFO files, whatever that means. And you take a look at some of those countries who are on the brink of not only disclosing their their so-called UFO files, but actually maybe making the first step about this internationally, and I guess from this you know the chair that I'm sitting in and being in Canada and all that, you sort of look to the United States as being the key player in all of this, but that's not necessarily true, is it? It doesn't have to be. That's right. Uh, I think, uh,
3: you know, 20 years ago, it would have been exclusively the purview of, of the United States, but I don't think anymore. You know, China, for example, has had airports closed over uh, UFO events. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the Chinese were about to level with everyone about what they thought was an extraterrestrial event or explanation uh, it might very well force the hand of the whoever was the u s president to call up his military guys and say, What do the Chinese know that we don 't know and He might get that first briefing and he might want to come forward and tell the world what we know about it because it would be better to lead the charge than to follow the charge uh, but there are there are some candidates for what you talked about. And again, we're not talking about simply releasing UFO files where people talk about things that they saw that can't be explained. There are thousands and thousands of those out there, and they haven't brought about disclosure. Mm -hmm. What you're really referring to is, is there a country that would be willing in an official status to take the first step and and start that ball rolling and i think there are several candidates china as i mentioned but uh, brazil has historically been very very involved in ufology and those issues there are several other countries in uh, south america certainly france and england have been involved in it and canada has also had its share of people who have come forward at various times to discuss the, the this this very issue so I think, in the same way that a, a loose coalition has kept the secret over the years, because this was no this was never a secret that can ma- be maintained only by the Americans. It's been a world secret, and in one way or another, various interest groups have come together to keep the secret. and I think the same will be said of 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 abandoning the secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, various interest groups will have to come together through private channels. Uh, based on circumstances, to decide that it's time to give it up. And uh, those will be interesting days indeed. You'll, If you watch the news regularly, you'll see the signs of it happening, and then when it happens, uh, we will cross over in our calendar from uh, BC before confirmation to AD after disclosure in a single day, mm-hmm. and the world will be very different.
2: David, on the line from Toronto, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Say hello to Bryce Zabel.
3: Yes, hello. Hi, David. You have a question. Yeah, I do. Uh, Like, I may
0: be misinformed, but I've heard some very strange stories about people that have been investigating, uh, like the Area 51 and the uh, Roswell incident, where there have been several strange deaths, like suicides and accidental deaths. If these people come clean, as you're suggesting, and tell the truth, Aren't they going to have to do a lot of explaining, which literally boils boils down to silencing people?
3: I, you know what? This is an excellent question. Uh, that is what I. Uh, it's funny in our book we talk more about. I didn't get into it just now, but clearly there are two things that nobody will grant amnesty or pardon for, and those are murder and treason. So if if things have crossed the line in my country or your country or anybody's country where you've crossed over into murder that will not be pardoned those people will go to jail for a very long time and uh and and, and probably there have been people i know that right now i've just finished the first draft of a script called magic men m a j i c which is based on the um the life stories of Stanton Friedman and Donald Schmidt and their uh their race if you will their competition to break the roswell story and 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 clearly uh, I would say uh, that we have a situation with, with Roswell where it, it's true, and, and in that story, it, for those of you who know, there was a congressman, Stephen Schiff, who very much wanted to investigate uh, the ufo reality and congressman Schiff died at the age of fifty one of a very fast-growing malignant melanoma so it's quite possible that he was taken out i mean no one really knows and one of the things that will be fascinating about a post-disclosure world is once that happens and once those uh, subpoenas start flying around and they will because we will handle this the way we handle most things they will, a lot of things will end up in court And those subpoenas will be asking for information, and we may see some documents that aren't so much about sightings of uh, lights in the sky, but are about people using extreme means and perhaps extra-legal means to maintain the secrecy. I think that we will probably give a pass to the people who have simply followed their orders to try to maintain secrecy. Uh, those people will not be viewed as criminals, but I think the people who have actually done crossed the line—the moral, the ethical, the criminal line—those people will not get a pass. They will go to jail.
2: James Forrestal, James McDonald. Yeah,
3: I mean, there's some it's really just, interesting. It's just, it's and, just and,
2: amazing. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the last few minutes that we do have, sure. um, Bryce, uh, I just filed a uh, a press release uh, in the middle of last week regarding uh, what we consider a bit of a bombshell by a former senior CIA agent. uh,
3: Chase Brandon. uh,
2: Chase Brandon, right. And uh, he was on the coast-to-coast, I believe it was on January 23rd, and he said the following, and he said it just right out loud so everyone could hear him. He said, I absolutely know that there was a craft from beyond this world that crashed in Roswell, that the military picked up remains, not just... The wreckage but cadavers and all of that was made public just for a short while 100 percent guarantee in my heart and soul i say roswell happened there was a craft absolutely cadavers um provide a context why would someone with with the credentials that chase brandon has uh, come forward and say something so stark so clear so obvious on a, on i guess to 1.5 million people. Um, what's your take on that?
3: Well, that's a excellent question. I know Chase Brandon. Um, I, I, um, I worked with him on an HBO pilot that I uh, wrote for uh, HBO back in uh, 2003 uh, called Hearts and Minds About the Iraq War. Listen, Chase is an affable, interesting man who's worked for the CIA for a number of years. Uh, he's made a living by uh, being sort of a conduit between Hollywood and and uh, the the basically the entertainment industry and the CIA. Uh, but what he has done on coast to coast is is to me inexplicable, uh, because the he s- makes the statement that this book he wrote and these statements he seems to be making have been vetted by the CIA.
4: Mm-hmm. Well,
3: I, I just. Uh, if if the CIA vetted them, uh, then then they're part of uh, the, a, a coming disclosure movement. But I think, find that very hard to believe. So I, I really wonder what Chase is up to. It's possible that uh, you, know, you know, obviously Philip Corso in his final years uh, made some statements about Roswell as, as well, and people had a lot of questions about him. I, I'm not trying to dodge your question. I do, I, mm-hmm. I guess what I would say about Chase Brandon is uh... it doesn't make rational sense for this to have gone down the way it went down and it raises a lot of questions that i wish i had answers to and i really don't it seems to me that uh... when he confirms what he confirmed which is roswell was real and in, in that it was a crash of a of, of of a flying object and there were cadavers uh... recovered that were not human uh, that's true i mean everything from the the magic Men movie that i've been working on and talking to stanton friedman and donald schmidt and seeing their excellent research there's hundreds of people that would confirm what chase just said but for him to confirm it as a cia person i just i just have a lot of questions about it and i wish i had the answers but i really don't and i think time uh i hope time gives him a little more clarity about whether he was acting on some kind of orders or whether he was just freelancing on his own and that we don't have what we have with Corso which is that feeling that well, it's really hard to get your arms around this one. What, you know, how much of this was, you know, his co-author, how much of did he believe? Was he an old man who was trying, you know, all the questions mm-hmm. people ask about Corso. I would like some clarity out of Chase Brandon, and I think if you're going to go on coast to coast and make that statement, then you ought to make yourself absolutely available uh to to discuss this in a larger context, I think Chase better be getting himself down to a lie detector test as quickly as possible, and I think he owes it to go on your show and other shows and answer direct questions from people, and not just throw that bombshell out in the middle of coast to coast.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, we have a we have a, a bit of a wrap up here to do, but I do I want the the, the public to hear his last statement about. Uh, what's, what he said, he said. I went into the side room. He visited the historical intelligence collection, the CIA office, where they had the the archives there. He said, I went into the side room and looked at all those boxes. I only had a chance to look at one. I pulled the one down that said Roswell, and I looked inside, and there were materials, there were paper, and there were other items. Once again, saying exactly what you said, he he needs to have uh, to come forward and find out. I guess find the strength within himself to say this and articulate why he's come out and what it will mean in terms of what type of disclosure movement might be afoot. This is just speculation on my part of obviously might be afoot if in fact what he's saying is in fact real.
3: Don't and by the way, don't you think that that a a, a... A bombshell such as Chase dropped should qualify him to get on 60 Minutes, and shouldn't somebody (laughs) talk to him for 20 minutes and say, now, wait a minute, you said this, but you know what? Our traditional media won't touch the story, which Mm -hmm. is part of the problem, which is why we have this problem six or seven decades later.
2: I want to thank you so much, Bryce, for coming on. We could talk about this for another two hours. Obviously, we'll have to have you and Richard back on at some point. The Thanks next, very much. Yeah, the next book is coming out. You, is it a clarifying the, the paperback? Well, just tell us Well, them, actually,
3: let me, th- th- let me just quickly yeah. say yeah. yes. Uh, A new version of A.D. After Disclosure is available not only at Amazon, but also in every Barnes & Noble that I know of. And uh, we have a vibrant Facebook group talking about this because we don't want disclosure to be the end. We want it to be the beginning. We want people joining this dialogue. So uh, thank you for having me on the show, and and I hope people read the book and want to talk about it.
2: You've made a great start. Thanks a lot, my friend. Take care. Bryce Zabel, co-author of After Disclosure, People's Guide to the World After Disclosure. Fascinating interview. Stay with us. We will be back with Thomas Stryker and Extraplanetary Experiences. I'm Victor Vigiani. Stay with us.
1: You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
2: Well now, wasn't that interesting? Chase Brandon, CIA agent, disclosing Roswell was real. Bryce Sable, author of an after-disclosure book, with uh, Richard Dolan bringing those facts together, really makes me think that disclosure is well on its way. I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but. Uh, That could be the direction we're moving in. We all know that Richard Serrett does a great job here in the radio, and uh, I don't know how many of you, hopefully, know that he has a radio program. In addition to that, he has a television program, and he's doing a series, all kinds of different things happening. He investigates Princess Diana, Elvis, Osama Bin Laden, Robert Kennedy, and if you want to get a look at the conspiracy show on TV, Go to the following website, www.visiontv.ca and look at shows and The Conspiracy Show, and you'll be able to get a handle on the many different things that Richard does on television as well as the excellent work that he does here on the radio. So have a look at that at some point during the day. Our next guest, my goodness, we're, now we're moving off planet. This is going to be something i, I just uh, been... I've been so eager to talk to our, our next guest, Dr. Thomas Striker, Ph.D., a student of John E. Mack. He earned his doctorate in psychology from Saybrook University, and he's the founder of and director of Divine Spark, a nonprofit uh, agency dedicated to helping people through meals and other means to activate the divine spark with, within each one of them. He lives in Nevada City, California. We welcome to the conspiracy show, Thomas Stryker. Good to have you with us, Thomas.
4: Hey, thank you. It's good to be here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, you're, I was reading a little bit about your work uh, with with the homeless and and, and all of that. Uh, what brought you What brought you to that to begin with?
4: Yeah, that was an interesting story. Actually, I'll be brief about it. But back in about two thousand. Um, I was very interested in spirituality, (laughs) cultural spirituality, different cultures. I started studying Native American spirituality, which led me out to uh, Minnesota to work with a shaman and his wife at a workshop. And I was very impressed by what they had to say. So after the workshop, I said, you know, can I come visit you where you live? And they said, yeah, sure. Come on out. Uh, I live on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. I knew nothing about it at the time. And so I said, okay, I'll be out there in about a couple months. So I got on out there, and I was just appalled at the conditions that these Native Americans were living under. You know, they had leaky roofs, you know, with black mold and living in severe poverty and uh, life expectancies for males. There was about 56 years old. Mm. And so I said, wow, this is terrible. I mean, this is still like the genocide continuing here. You know, in a sense, it was. So I said, I'm going to. Do something about this. You know, I want to uh, dedicate a part of my life to helping here. So when I got back home to Nevada City, I have a good friend that's an attorney, and I told him about what I experienced out there. And so it was his idea to start up a nonprofit corporation. He said, "Well, you can get some money, and you can do what you want to do." So he went ahead and did all the paperwork, got the nonprofit established. And that's how I started Divine Spark by taking um supplies out to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. It was about a thirteen hundred one way thirteen hundred miles one way out there but I would just um, i still am going out there four times a year. it's been over ten years now, and we've taken a lot of uh, goods out there plus we started up a um a couple of well, uh one website for the women so if they could sell their quilts uh, mm-hmm. internationally now and so I'm really happy about that work there. But the other part of Divine Spark has to do with uh, we started six years ago. We were asked to start helping the local homeless and below poverty level people here in Nevada City. And so we got involved in that, started doing one free meal a week, which grew and grew and grew. And now we're, we're giving out vouchers um, to the homeless where they can go and eat at uh, uh, some local restaurants. So, yeah, that's the big part of my life work is being involved with the nonprofit and just helping mm-hmm. people that – you know, going through
2: a hard time. Well, you've you've really um, you've set a fire going, and uh, I guess an even bigger divine spark with with your new book, Extra uh, Planetary experiences. And in, in reading the book, I, I'm struck by not only the the care with which you take with people that when you talk to them, you talk about active listening and all of the uh, the more sensitive parts of letting people unfold their um, their story to you. Um, Tell us about how the study began. It, 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 you did this, this larger study at Questionnaires and you, you, there was a selection process. And, and it, it, Just talk to us about how it, how it began that way.
4: Okay, I'm going to give you a little brief on that. In March of 2003, so I've been working on this for about 10 years, but in March of 2003 I was in graduate school and I presented my first dissertation proposal which I had titled, Self-Reports of People Who Believe Themselves to Have Had Experiences on Other Planets. I delivered this to students and scholars at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto, which is a graduate school. And just to tell you, you know, at that time, many people at the school were unaware and skeptical, of course, of the content and validity of my topic. Even a leading psychologist and scientist there said to me privately in a back room, he says, There are no damn aliens. Another psychologist accused me of misinterpreting Carl Jung's work and the verticality of UFOs and extraterrestrials. So to be blunt, uh, for me, uh, researching the topic was an underground activity, but I didn't give up. I just kept meeting with extraterrestrial researchers and experiencers across the U.S. and Europe. So, um, you know, this was a big stretch, you know, for people to try to understand this, but I had my first opportunity at this school uh, in front of an audience to see if it would be acceptable, and uh, you know I felt bold and daring, of course, as I <laughs> surrounded myself with all the historical accounts of people that have, you know, allegedly gone to other planets, like Orfeo Angelucci's book, and George Damsky, Elizabeth Clare, Claude Verillion, you know, Woodrow, Derenberger, and, and, and a number of them. I just surrounded myself with all this anecdotal. Um, you know, classical uh, books, published books of people's experiences going to other planets. So I not only had that, because I know that was going to be a big stretch for these people, I also you know was talking about the Sumerian scriptures and the Vedic texts and, you know, other expanding experiences such as, you know, alien abduction experiences, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences. And so to make a long story short, at the end of that uh, presentation, they gave me... Um, be okay to go ahead and study and research, uh, start the dissertation process with that topic. But I got to tell you that the next problem was one of the biggest, because I had to get a dissertation committee together, which means you have to find an expert in the field, and this school didn't have any. So I said, well, what do you want me to do? There's nobody here that can really assist me with this. And they said, well, we want you to get Dr. John Mack. Oh, yeah, right. A, <laughs>
2: a very tall order.
4: Yeah, that's a tall order, all right. You know, and I says, you mean to tell me if I get Dr. Mac, you'll okay this? So yeah, you get Dr. Mac on your committee, and uh, we'll give you the okay to get it going. So this was a task, all right. You know, for months, I tried to get a hold of John. You know, of course, at the time, he was a tenured Harvard professor, Pulitzer Prize winner, had two books out, Alien Abduction and Passport to the Cosmos. He was world famous. And... uh I never, I didn't get to talk with him initially. I, I worked through his secretary, a really nice lady. Her name was Pat Carr, and uh, worked with her for months trying to see if John would ever be interested in working with a graduate student like myself. And finally, she said to me, after I pursued it for months, she said, okay, John's going to call you at your home tonight at 7 o'clock. And sure enough, 7 o'clock I came around. There was John Mack on the phone. We we're talking about Extraplanetary experiences. So, uh, John, I told John, I said, you know, this has really been tough for me. It's been a big challenge, but there's something about this that I have to do this. And he he understood it perfectly. And he just said, yep, okay, I'll sign the papers and I'll send them to the school, no problem. And he did it. He did it within a couple of days. The uh, school got, you know, uh, John's signature of him being on the dissertation committee. And, uh, boy, we were ready to go. But, of course, many of you know what happened. The tragedy mm-hmm. struck less than, well, about six months later, mm-hmm. Dr. Mack was involved in a fatal accident in London, England. Right. And so he was my main dissertation committee member. So after John's death, basically my school just said, oh, sorry there, Thomas, uh, you're going to just have to drop that topic now because there's no way you're going to be able to finish that here. And I was into this. You know, I was mm-hmm. you know, almost to the end of this and paying quite a bit of money. They told me that I couldn't finish it, so you could imagine how upset yeah. I was.
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell you something that um, I spent, in 1996, I spent two days with John at his office uh, at Harvard University, because at the time I was still an elementary school principal, and he had an interest in children who had experiences, and I had run into two or three myself. Uh, of these youngsters, uh, grade, one to grade 6, uh, that had some pretty bizarre things going on in their lives. And mm. uh, they inadvertently, you know, let it slip. Um, but in any case, he's a, the, the interest that he showed in this and the assistance that he gave me in trying to work through it, and subsequent to that, I had been working with experiencers after that and even before. So he was an absolutely uh, true, bold soul in the, in the uh, true sense of the word. But um, let's just move forward here. Um, Sure. In, in in doing what you've done, uh, you've you've really you know you've hit a nerve with me because I have listened to stories of these people before. Um, how do you make the distinction between, or maybe this is a naive question, but you you, you look at the the experience of of, of an off world experience of some kind, and then there's the abduction experience. Uh, you know, the, the alien abduction ex- experience. Uh, how how do, you, do you differentiate between the two or are they synonymous? I did, just clarify that for me personally anyways.
4: Certainly. Well, I look at each case subjectively. Each case, you know, is, um, you know, an individual's experience. So, uh, you know, I've talked to hundreds of people now, you know, in these years that I've been working with this and everybody has their experience but at the same time they're at a different level of assimilation. Now, I'm going to use this word probably a lot tonight because mm-hmm. it's such an important word. Yeah. How the person assimilates the experience is where it's at. Uh, some people, I'll just give you a brief on this, about alien abduction experiences especially. Start working with people, and they say, oh, yeah, I was abducted, you know, and this happened, this happened. And you start working with them for a, even a couple of months, and all of a sudden they start changing their story that, well, you know, maybe I really wasn't abducted. I, I was just so doggone scared, you know, I was in shock. And I... I'm not really sure what happened, but maybe he really didn't take me by force, you know. So the stories, tar- you know, start to change. So I guess what I'm going to try to tell you right now is how much time I can have with the experiencer. It means a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, in my book, you know, I used just a few. There's a lot more coming. Um, there was a lot more even in my dissertation, but the book is short, you know, in, in respects to the experiences. But those experiencers in the book—they're all over 50 years old. They had many, many years to basically assimilate their experience and that's why they were so articulate and that was what i wanted you know in my questionnaire in the study i would say you know can you sit down with me for an hour and a half and two hours and tell me about your experience on another planet so that was a prerequisite you know in a mm-hmm. sense. so they had to have really had been working with their experience not just something that happened once and you know um, they just kind of forgot about it they're still working through it today you know all of them are Mm-hmm. You know, that's how, uh, i how traumatic, but how prof- profound the experience has been. You know, it's just something that keeps unraveling for them. They learn more mm-hmm. and more as time goes on.
2: We're talking with Thomas Stryker regarding extraplanetary experiences. Um, in, in talking with these people, there seems to be so many commonalities about how they deal with the the, the phenomenon itself. And there's a lot of striking differences Um What what are some of the real striking commonalities that that you ran into when you talked to this array of people?
4: Well, I pulled out twenty five common themes. I call them through this. I use something in psychology is called thematic content analysis. Basically, what what you do is you you take an interview for an hour and a half, two hours, and you got a lot of um, you know you tape it and then you uh, transcribe it. So you're looking at all these words you know the interview maybe 20 30 pages of of the interview and you keep reading it over and over again and you start pulling out extracting important what I call themes something important that the person said that sticks in your mind and sometimes they repeat it two or three times those are important themes so after i you know dug through all that and then you do each one of those individually then you read them all together and then he said what I do is I use a highlighter, and I start highlighting these themes. You know, there could be, in this case, there were 25 common themes between those interviewers. And uh, basically, you know, what they're saying is, you know, you know, they believe that there's other intelligent life in the universe is one very striking. You know, every one of them believe that. Every one of them believes they have psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. They use, they're telepathic. Um, you know, those are interesting things, but the other things, you know, more on a more humane, um, compassionate level is that they're more of service. They feel like, since they're experienced, they want to be more of service to the general good of humankind, you know, and I like that. Um, and you Thomas, know, stay with on us. On some yeah. Of these
2: yeah, Thomas, stay with us, okay, because I, yeah. I want to get back to that exact same theme and finding out, um, where they're, where they're getting this from. We're talking to Thomas Stryker, author of Extraplanetary Experiences. And uh, you just stay put. My name is Victor Vigiani. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show.
1: Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740.
4: Also, the people that I work with, they doubt as much as
3: I do what's going on. In other words, they will often come to me uh, saying, you know, can you uh, make this go away? Uh, You know, they'll say it's a dream. They want it to be found to be
4: part of their psyche, not to be real. And I've seen case after case after case where the lips quiver, tears come down the person's cheeks. Uh, They they become stunned
3: at the moment in the session where they realize they weren't asleep. It was not a dream.
2: Of course, the voice of John E. Mack, he's no longer with us. If you want to get in on this conversation, by all means, you can call 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-0740. We're talking with Thomas Stryker about his book, his great new work, Extraplanetary Experiences, Alien, Human Contact, and the Expansion of Consciousness. Thomas, you heard um, uh, John talk about the way people react to, I guess, being exposed to all of this and the way their consciousness uh, has been expanded and the way they've been affected deep down in their soul about what they've experienced and not wanting it to be real. Um, how, how often did you run into that kind of response from people?
4: Well, of course, John, you know, was an expert in what he, you know, the way he worked with people. And I learned a lot from him, you know, something called sympathetic resonance is a term he would use in his witnessing technique, And, um, you know, basically witnessing is just about being there and holding the space and really being, uh, you know, a really avid listener and being able to connect with people on that soul level, you know. So I certainly wasn't an expert like he was, but I felt I've had, you know, been able to work with people because of my own experiences that people seem to have a pretty easy time connecting with me. So, yes, I mean, I've had plenty of interviews, you know, with people, breaking down and going into a sympathetic mode to where they really sometimes get frustrated, like they don't have all the answers. They can't understand also why it's happened to them. And I think that's the, the hardest or the biggest challenge of when you're listening to people is to see the frustration that sometimes occurs, you know, as they're trying to fight to find the words to describe the experience
2: yeah I guess that 's all part of it too, because there really is no language uh that we have at our disposal to to talk about this a, a, on a real level it it you can you can look at it from many different points of view, but when an experiencer goes through the uh, i guess the the, the heart wrenching um, experience itself and then once again. They become heart-wrenched when they're trying to tell someone about it. It must be very difficult for them to be, um, I, guess, I guess, attempt to be sane or appear to be sane. How did you, you sort of rule out people who were attempting to um, you know, hoax or, or, or confabulate, or, or was there an attempt to do that?
4: Well, of course, you know, there's always a, you know, the fantasy-prone individual that may have imagined this. You know, but that, you know, my years of psychology has really helped me. You know, the, I studied psychology for 15 years. You know, and I've I got pretty good at trying to uh, evaluate people where they're at. You know, so I could usually tell a hoaxer or a, somebody that, of course, a drug user or you know somebody that's on psychedelics or uh, it's pretty easy. You know, when you sit down and try to talk with somebody for an hour and a half and two hours, it's pretty hard for a person that's not coherent. You know, to <laughs> To sit there with me and I'm, uh, you know, like really trying to get deep into this experience, and usually they just don't last. They're gone. You know, sorry, I got to go, and they're gone. You know, because they know that they were just trying to, to fabricate something. So there's ways of, you know, this interviewing process, you know, that you can I think get into deeper depth pretty easily. Now I can get pretty deep with people within 10 minutes to see where they're where they're at with it. You know, and I'm not saying that they're they're lying to me because I, you know. I go through this a lot now. Of all the interviews I've been doing, and plus the you know the radio shows, a lot of people are asking me about, "Gosh, why do you believe these people?" You know, and I say, "Well, it's not the question of radicality as much as I am interested in the important life changes that occur." So, so my my intention is different, you know, and that's what I want people to understand out there, and that's why I can usually. Get into deeper because I'm not like, oh, tell me your story. I just got to hear what you, you know, experienced. Right. Yeah. No, I'm pulling. I'm extracting themes already as I'm interviewing them. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. Important uh, yeah.
4: life-changing themes, you know, and I'll repeat the theme to them right away as soon as they say it.
2: You've and interviewed. They, yeah, they you've interviewed s- no. several different people. Um, you interviewed uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell. And, in reading his experience or your recounting of the experience with him, I looked at the interview that you you had with him uh, and I, it was in two parts in my in my sense it would it, the, the very beginning i guess two thirds of the interview were kind of nuts and bolts stuff you know he went to the moon, got off you know, the, the ladder, stepped onto the moon, what did he saw, what did he see? Uh, how did he interpret what he saw on the moon, uh, and then, towards the end, you become your, your, your questions become a little bit more pointed, and he becomes a little bit more philosophical in his approach to what happened to him. Can you take us through that interview to, to, to maybe explain that transition?
4: Well, I think, yeah. I think, you know, um, Dr. Mitchell is kind of a nuts and bolts guy. He's a scientist, you know, and I think he likes people to know that he's a scientist and that he had a mission, you know, on the Apollo mission, you know, was to a specific purpose. Designated to, you know, as an experiment, basically. So he was really trying to stay in line with that, you know, about the mission that he went through. And I got that, and, uh, you know, I wasn't going to try to steer him off course of that. But then, you know, later on, we just started talking, you know, more about, like, I asked him the question, do you believe there's other intelligent life in the universe? You know, and then he just said, uh, well, of course. You know, <laughs> like, wow, where'd that come from? You know, after all this. <laughs> Scientific evaluation, you know, he never, you know, never stated seeing anything out there on his Apollo mission. But then, his own personal views are a little bit different, and I really like that about uh, Dr. Mitchell. He knows that he's willing, you know, talk about assimilation. You know, this is a really good point because uh, Dr. Mitchell now is about 80 years old, and he's still assimilating his Apollo mission. Uh, you know, that, it's a lot of years, you know, to be processing, but that's why we called his journey, his interview in Apollo Samadhi, because he called, you know, he looked at the experience more as a Samadhi experience, a mystical experience, still unraveling, probably, you know, t- till the day he dies, he's going to still be unraveling that experience, and I thought that was just so, so commendable of uh, Dr. Mitchell to look at it that way.
2: You also interviewed uh, Norma Milanovic, is that am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Milanovic. Yeah. Right. Tell us a little bit about that one. That, that I, I was really fascinated about the the civilizations that she, she, that she had met.
4: Okay. Well, no, this is you know it's <laughs> interesting because the first and the last interviews, you know, first was you know Edgar Mitchell, and then the last interview was Ingel Swan. Now, these are those are both very scientifically based, and uh, once you read the book, you'll notice. But in between those two experiences, there is some real. Uh, different ethereal kind of uh, out-of-body experiences, and people going to other worlds in different ways. So you mentioned uh, Norma Milanovic, and um, we basically called hers uh, "My Journey to Alpha Centauri." So Norma's got a really interesting past too, because she was she taught uh, teachers how to teach, basically PhD level. So she was she's a very intelligent person. And she just got fed up with it all, and um, I. Th- she started working what she calls the ascended masters, you know, you know, from this planet that she goes to, and she can basically almost immediately get in contact with them now because she's so um, engulfed and uh, so available now that she's worked and assimilated the experience so well that those are just right there for her uh, if she wants to communicate with them. So that's. Uh, now these we're talking about what I would consider, you know, totally more involved, intelligent beings, and so does she. You know, we're talking about, you know, beings that have like ten senses instead of like our five. They're just um you know, they can shape shift, they can change their their physical nature if they want. Um so um she just said she always felt like they were always trying to teach her. They were her teachers, and this is the you know the other side of the story that I really like people to know because so so many people are are um, engulfed with the the violent ETs that have been attacking people in alien abductions. You know, this is a total different side. None of my cases were alien abduction experiences. You know, so that's a whole other phenomenon that we'd have to spend a whole other show on if we're going to talk about alien. Right, uh, yeah. abduction Abduction. Thomas, okay? uh,
2: Thomas, I'm going to hold you there for a sec, okay? Yeah. And uh, we're going to be right back here on the Conspiracy Show. I'm Victor Vigiani. Stay with us. Once again, we're talking to Thomas Stryker, author of uh, a very, very interesting book, to say the least, Extraplanetary Experiences, Alien Human Contact, and the Expansion of Consciousness. Right now we're talking uh, about one of the experiencers, And I guess we are talking a little bit about what she, I guess, explained to you when she went to Alpha Centauri.
4: Right. Now, you just got to steer me in the right direction because I get really long-winded. That's
2: okay. You just go right ahead.
4: (laughs) So, if you want to talk a little bit more about Norma, um, she's an experiencer of many, many years, and she's assimilated her experiences very well. She's, you know, if you want to talk to her about it. She's got them right there on the top of her head, you know, just uh, Mm -hmm. to let you know. She articulates very well. So, basically, with Norma is that she's been working what she calls the Ascended Masters for years and years. She communicates with them telepathically. I want to tell you that all these experiencers that I'm mentioning and extraplanetary experiences are communicating telepathically. Now, people say, well, what about the SETI program? How come they didn't get to contact anybody? say, well, they're using radio transmissions, for God's sakes, I mean, who ever heard of extraterrestrials using radio transmissions? So I want to make that really clear that um, all the experiencers that I've worked with communicate with extraterrestrials telepathically. Now, I'm not saying that Edgar Mitchell is working with, you know, that's a little bit different story. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the other ones uh, in between, like I said before, between Edgar Mitchell and ending with Ingalls Swan, in between those, those people are working directly with extraterrestrials on a telepathic level. So the important thing is that um, the way Norma c- communicates, um, she just gets very... Uh, well, she's a good listener, too. I think that's why she gets so much information that she'll just ask them a question. How can I improve my life? What kind of service should I be of? What, what, why am I here? You know, who am I? <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're assisting, they're assisting her to find the answers to those questions. And those are important questions that I think we all have to answer someday. You know, just basically, who do we think we are? And if we think we're the only intelligent beings in the universe, I think we've got a little surprise coming. And she had a big surprise coming to her in her early 20s when she quit, you know, got out of the you know, academia. And uh, she's very happy working with the Ascendant Masters, and she's written a couple of books about her experiences. Um, and uh, she doesn't have to go there. This is The other thing about this, you don't have to go to the planet to uh, communicate with these beings. Mm-hmm. You know, going to these other planets, I think, is a little extra, you know, just... Uh, a little extra is something that you ask for, and they'll possibly do it. It's,
2: uh, you know, it's, one of the things that fascinated me about the, when I talk to people at, at this level, and it is the most bizarre, it is just uh, you really have to um, attempt to get your mind around what these people go through. And one of the real difficulties, dilemmas, that some of the people that I spoke with, uh, they had a hard time initially Uh, trying to figure out if this is coming from me inside. Is it coming from my subconscious? Am I constructing this in an inner reality, reality, or is it coming from me externally? And Uh in each case, eventually... They, they, they disregard the fact that it's coming from some sort of internal sense because of the kinds of information that they're being given the kinds of experiences that are being thrown at them and the absolute complete authenticity of the experience and that is something that I learned very, very quickly from, uh, from the people who um, really dug deep to try to figure out what was going on did you get a sense of that from the people you spoke to?
4: Well... I'm trying to understand exactly what you were saying and how, the, how you think the people assimilated their experience. Because I'll just be honest with you, mm-hmm. everybody assimilates their experience differently. It's a subjective experience. And it comes and it goes. And it's like uh, they don't have really all that much control as they would like to of it. Even though, God, I want to process this experience. I, mm-hmm. I'll do anything it takes. It's not, it doesn't happen like that. It's mm-hmm. just, it just takes time, patience, and a greater understanding. And in these particular cases, working with their ET brothers and sisters, you know, they, you know, they're, they befriended, you know, and a higher and more intelligent being. So it's like they don't have control of that as much as they would like to in the beginning. It's almost like making a friend. You know, the rapport starts being built, and I'm talking like over 20, 30 years now working with these beings. Okay, like you could imagine, uh, maybe you could imagine what it could be like if you stayed in contact with with that phenomenon for that long. So some of these people have, and, and they, their experience really paid off in a sense, not uh, monetarily as much as them getting a lot of wisdom, getting a lot of information about uh, what to do in this lifetime and what's going to happen, what to what are the possibilities of them finding, you know, peace and joy and meaning in their life is greatly enhanced with the help of these benevolent beings. So, and that's what we're getting at now, too, is, you know, I'm saying benevolent beings. Not all of them are benevolent. Right. You, know, you can, just like when you go out and you want to find a friend, if you look in the wrong places, you could find a, an enemy, you know. It's, so it's like where you want to, what intention, you know, it comes out to the intention you're putting out there and these people... Most of the people that I've worked with now have been pretty lucky that way.
2: Do you also think that um, part of the experience, it's almost like they've been given a roadmap for their life, and they, they, um, they, they try to follow this roadmap depending on the kinds of experiences they've had. And a, a part of what I learned uh, is the familial aspect of this, and that if you got into an experiencer's, um, I guess, overall life and, and, and what, what they had been going through, you know, in their early childhood to their teens and, and, you know, and beyond. And almost invariably, uh, you, you would talk to, to, to some of them, a large percentage, and you eventually find out, that, well, yes, yeah, this happened to mom or that happened to dad. Uh, was there a familial aspect to this that went back uh, either in their, within their recent generations or even further back?
4: Well, most of them had you know childhood experiences starting there, but like we're talking about Norma, she started in her 20s having experiences. She was a little coming a little later onset. Uh, some of the other ones started having experiences five, six, seven, eight years old. You know, that's when it's the first contact started. Um, and To be honest with you, a lot of them, you know, didn't, weren't really understood by their parents. You know, and uh, they had a hard time coming out. You know, uh, about their experience to their to their parents. Um, and I think that's pretty usual because of the consensus reality world, dominant worldview attitudes, you know, of most people.
2: Of course, yeah. When
4: something like this happens, you know, who do you talk to about it? You know, not, there's not too many people. Now there's a better chance of finding somebody that may support you and listen to what, you know, if you did see a UFO or if you did have contact with, you know, if you say you had an alleged experience, you know, you have people you can somewhat talk to now. But, uh, you know, back 20 years ago, that wasn't so easily understood.
2: What about the the idea of remote viewing? Um, There's there's a lot of talk about the work that's been done, and and in a very strict sense, this is sort of almost a military task that people can learn. Uh, Mm -hmm. Explain to our listeners, first of all, what remote viewing is, and then how it may have manifested itself in your work.
4: Well, the remote viewing, we have to go to Ingleswan, the last interview in my book because without question, he was probably one of the most advanced remote viewers um, out there. But he's, you know, not available any longer. I was lucky to get the interview, and I still talk with him once in a while. But, um, you know, he basically was a psychic, you know, and um, it's a psychic ability, basically. To put it really easily, what remote viewing is, you know, is like perceive, use perception what do you think is over there? Like right now, you're sitting there talking with me. What do you think, where do you think I'm sitting right now? I see, yeah. yeah. And you just perceive, try to perceive. And you can get better and better at this. And it sounds a little odd, but it's the way it starts.
2: (laughs) It's it's like working a muscle, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sense. Well, yeah. it, it it certainly is something that's uh, uh, there's a lot of skepticism towards this, uh, and and once again, now, it, how do you relate all of this? Uh, you, did you do any work in relating it to the UFO phenomenon itself, and and how did it play out in terms of you know craft and and so and the relationship uh, with with the experiences these people had?
4: Yeah, sure, that's a good question. Now, I, in the beginning of my book, I go into some historical narratives, you know, historical published accounts. Of uh, what I consider to be an extraplanetary experience. Now, all these were—they were taken by. Extra, I think all, almost all of them. Let's see, Angelucci, Adamski. Yeah, I think they were all taken by craft to another uh, planet. Well, of course, you know you don't have to take a craft, and a lot of advanced beings don't even use craft. You know, so. Uh, but the historical records that I want to give people a really good grasp on what this experience is like, mm-hmm. I use the old, you know, from the 50s, you know, or Angelucci, starting with him, 1956, going to Adamski, 58. You know, and then um, Claude Verrilli and, and Billy Meyer and all these people that, you know, claim to have had this extraplanetary experience. So what I'm trying to help people understand now is that we're moving quick, Okay a lot quicker like (laughs) the 50s was 50 years ago so we're 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 way beyond that now there's not these advanced beings you know that um that we're talking about now they don't have to use craft to appear here
2: i see yeah i see what you mean
4: yeah so they're you know we're talking about you know entities about highly intelligent beings, you know, that are probably, like I said before, you know, we have five senses, they have ten senses. They want to shapeshift, they can do that. They can, you know, appear and non-appear, you know. So it's it's a little bit more complex when working with, with these beings. I'm not saying that they weren't around before, but they're taking greater interest in working with us now, and I think we're taking greater interest in working with them. So they're here, they're available, Um, In in the 50s, you know, and that's not, of course, that's not when extraterrestrials arrived, you know, know, because the other part of my hypothesis is that we are extraterrestrials, okay? That if you think about the history of the Earth, you know, being 4.6 billion years old, this is relatively a new planet in comparison to other planets in the cosmos. So, you know, I just think, well, my God, Life had to evolve on these other planets before Earth did. So let's say you had humans evolving on other planets, you know, millions of years before we started evolving, they're gonna really be advanced, wouldn't you say?
2: Obviously, or could for be sure.
4: advanced. Yeah, you know, they could have, you know, ten times as much neural cortex as we have and have the ability to, you know, just all these psychic type abilities and other senses that we don't have, that we may have someday. But the, the other part of this is that we're all connected to all this. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we have to worry about or be afraid of this, because basically it's us in the future.
2: So, so I guess what you're saying is that back in the 50s, and some of the reading that I've done about this, the, the earlier history of this, you know, the, uh, people reported getting on a craft and going to Venus or whatever. Right. And that that kind of talk... That kind of, uh, I guess, assessment of what they went through has really uh, changed. It's it's evolved into something much more ethereal and much more uh, intrusive in our psyche. And as you say, they don't need craft to come and go. How do you account for that evolution? It's it's a very strange uh, kind of movement away from this nuts and bolts thing about what UFOs were and are to a much more um, ethereal view of, of, of where these people are from, what they're doing here, and
4: why they're doing it. Well, you know, because all this advancement, you know, even in psychology in the last 20 years, you know, the out-of-body experience, the near-death experience, we're able to perceive the experience of leaving our bodies. That was like, how do you do that? You know, it's like, that's impossible. But it's not impossible. You know, it's even being taught to people that are dying now, that, you know, hospice and some of these other organizations trying to help people leave their bodies at the time of death because mm-hmm. some people just struggle of that, you know, at the very end. It's so painful for them because they don't want to let go of their body. So you see how things have evolved Mm -hmm. in the last 20 years?
2: Oh, yeah. You know, the
4: near-death experience and out-of-body experience mm -hmm. alone.
2: Yeah, it, it just continues to fascinate me with with respect to um, the, the evolution of all of that. And I think you pointed that uh, out a few minutes ago. But I'm going to hold you there again. We're going to take a bit of a break. But uh, I want you to talk a little bit about this idea of DNA and what we may have and they might have. Um, so uh, stick around with us. We'll, uh, we'll be back in a, in a moment here on The Conspiracy Show. I'm Victor Vigiani.
1: the owners of the system are asleep now we can play the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740.
2: we're talking with thomas Stryker regarding his fascinating written work called extraplanetary experiences we've been talking about all different aspects of I guess maybe the alien abduction phenomenon and, and different different ways it's being interpreted and how it's evolved over the years and one of the things that that I'd like to address with you and i, I mentioned this uh, to a group of people that I spoke with um, in Rochester, New York about oh, about four or five months ago, and I guess it has to do uh, Thomas with the way people internalize or do not internalize any of this information, be it the UFO phenomenon or the abduction phenomenon. There just seem to be people out there when you relate this stuff to them that have an affinity for it. They can accept it. They can buy into it. They can listen to it. They can um, integrate it into the reality. And uh, even if they don't believe it completely, at least they're open to the idea of discussing it. And some of them take it more deeply than others. And then there is the other kind of individual and I draw a very, very dark line between the, the, these and the other ones where they will not entertain any possibility of this kind of stuff going on. And what I said to the group in, in, in Rochester, whether I'm right or wrong, and I think you would partially address this in, in the beginning part of your book, that there may be something in our DNA that allows us or disallows us from internalizing or accepting this information or even accepting the possibility of that. What's your comment on that?
4: Well, I don't believe it's DNA. I believe it's developed, okay, just from a psychological standpoint. Mm -hmm. This is my own hypothesis here. You have such people as religious fanatics, okay, that they are so um, into their religion and so dogmatic about their religion that they don't want anything else to interfere with that. It's like living in a tippet pond. They feel secure, warm, and safe. I see, yeah. And they don't want anybody coming in and splashing some cold water on them, okay, because they like being that way. And, you know, to me, it doesn't bother me anymore. It used to, I think, when I was first starting and I said, gosh, they're going to have a long, long period of, uh, you know, resistance. I mean, they're already in resistance, but they're going to have a long period of trying to adjust to change, and that's okay. So... I don't think it's a DNA thing at all. I think it's something that's developed in childhood. Just like, for instance, why are some people prejudiced and racist? Why? Because they learned it from their parents. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, a lot of this stuff is learned at home. You know, the dogmas learned at home. I, I put this in my book, in the preface of my book. My parents wanted me to be like my dad really wanted. He was a very religious Catholic, and he wanted me to be just like him and be a, a Jesuit priest. So I went to... You know, parochial schools, I went to uh, even lived with a priest for a summer vacation, and uh, I just finally realized after my first near-death experience at 11 years old, boy, this does not make it my book. I had, so I had a life-altering experience. So maybe this is what I'm trying to say is that um, you can break those that conditioning that even parents and other authority figures try to instill in us and tell us who we are. By the experience. Now, to me, the experience is the most important authoritative part of us that we have. If we can understand the experience, we can't let our experience go. That's how important it is. I'm mm-hmm. really trying to, you know, focus on this and make a point, because that could be your leading authority. It doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be a book. It doesn't have to be scientists. scientist. It's all innate. It's inside you already. Just go in there and bring it out.
2: Yeah, you, you talked about that in the very beginning of the book, as you said. Uh, I can identify with you clearly on the, the Catholicity aspect of, of how that, that worldview, that mindset, creates a real corridor of, of resistance for you that's hard to break out of after a while. And the more, I, I guess, you attempt to break out of it uh, without some sort of help possibly from others, or it does come from internalizing, I guess, too, but it really puts a straitjacket on your life.
4: Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think too what you talked about with I believe it was with Edgar Mitchell that at some point you reach this epiphany and you reach a point where something happens to you either you know an experience as you as you indicated earlier or with with um, Edgar Mitchell uh, getting to the moon he just used the, did he use the word epiphany yeah uh, yeah yeah
4: epiphany coming back yeah from the moon coming back to earth mm-hmm.
2: yeah and and I guess my my extrapolation of that would be. This seems to be happening to a lot of people on the planet, okay, and John Mack talks about millions, okay, uh, that's happening to all the time, and th- this, this sort of um, collective experience is going on, in your sense, is it embracing more and more people all the time, are more and more people becoming touched by this, uh, or is it something that's becoming more narrow in its focus? How, how are you reading that planetarily, and the, way it, it's, the way it's evolving?
4: Well, I'm talking to a lot more people now. I don't know if it's because I got a PhD now, but before I had a PhD, you know, not many people would listen to me. But now <laughs> that I've, you know, attained this degree, I'm talking to a lot bigger crowds, and they're all getting it now. Like they're saying, you know, I feel like I have been conditioned. I was, I really didn't believe that. I just wanted to stay safe and be like other people, you know. And that's, you know, as you get into your 40s, you're going through a midlife crisis. That you got to let that stuff go or it'll kill you. And I think people are ready now to let that go and say, what exactly is it out there that I'm so afraid of or afraid to understand? So I was in the San Francisco area just a couple of days ago and I was doing a presentation about the book. And, you know, by the end of that presentation, we had a genuine feeling of unity. So to answer your question, I think people are getting much more open-minded about this phenomenon because they 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 feel there's something there, not just like they're saying there's something there. You know, there's like an innate sense. I'm trying to get back that all of us could possibly have this innate sense of being connected to other intelligent life in the universe.
2: And that, that connectivity uh, appears to be uh, creating uh, a different kind of... A thrust to knowledge and the change towards a different kind of knowledge. And I guess what I'm talking about is is the rejection of ideas like, uh, you know, evolution and Darwinism and, and the Big Bang Theory and all of those things that science has told us and even the Catholic Church has told us uh, and that many of us have since rejected, that this is the way the world is and that kind of condition conditioning is so inbred and the evolution of, I think, what you're talking about is allowing us the space to reject some of these worldviews that just will not allow us uh, to expand our consciousness. And that's, I guess, what you're getting at in the book.
4: Yeah, well, it basically comes back to mommy, daddy, teacher, husband, wife, right? You always got some authority figure trying to tell us what to do or, or how to think. It's like we've got to get out of that box. And I think more and more people are getting out of that box.
2: When do you think that's going to happen? It's happening. It, it's, it's happening. It is happening.
4: You know, I mean, yeah. I definitely feel it's happening. It's growing. It's. I mean, I don't know, I don't expect it just to catch on like overnight. To, you know that. I mean, even if there was a, um, you know, a huge, massive landing of UFOs, you know, in, in somebody's backyard, some people would see it and some wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Because that's just part of how this the human psyche works. It can only handle so much. You know, it's called ontological shock. You just it can't accept it all. Yeah. You know, and that's I, I brought that back out too in the in the book. It's called inattentional blindness. Going back to imagine this, you know, back in the mm-hmm. old days mm-hmm. and you're seeing those massive Spanish galleons on the ocean. What a sight. Now, three stories high, uh firing Cannonballs. I mean, and people were in canoes at the time. That was the most advanced technology. That was
2: about it, right? Yeah.
4: You know, so we're looking at we're in that same field with a lot of people.
2: Yeah, it it is an amazing field to be to be working in. Oh, it is. Yeah, I, the the last thing I'd I'd like to throw at you before we leave is we we spoke with Bryce Sable earlier this evening regarding disclosure and the government acknowledgement about the, about this problem about the secrecy, and and, and I guess actual contact. Um, you would probably say that contact has already been made in another in another way. You
4: know. Well, of course, contact's yeah. been made. Don't count on the government to tell you. Yeah. that's what we have to move away from. Those are our authority figures yeah. that you know we've been conditioned to. Why waste your time with that?
2: Yeah, it is. is Do it, your
4: own. Do your own research yeah,
2: yeah. it 's sort of counterproductive to have Big brother tell us that well here 's what 's really going on,
4: yeah, and they yeah. could stage a real good alien invasion
2: well there 's someone who uh, I believe it was Michael Sala wrote a piece on the exopolitics uh, news site regarding uh, a false flag operation that could be planned for the uh, the London Olympics coming up, uh, sure. I guess soon. Uh, but all of that is is very complex, and uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us this evening. And I know you're, you've are uh, you got a lot of work to do, a lot more work to do with the people that you're helping, and I know you've helped us this evening, uh, Thomas, to move forward in our understanding of this really, really complex issue. Thanks for being with us.
4: Thanks. Well, it really was a pleasure talking with everybody. I hope everybody was listening, and i uh, like to do it again sometime. Sure, we'll talk again. Okay. Good night now. Bye.
2: Well, it's uh, been an interesting evening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I certainly have, and I do want to thank um, Mr. Serrett for allowing me to sit in the, in the, in the big chair this evening. Um, i not sure why he does it, but I guess he, he trusts me. And uh, it's good to have someone like Richard uh, and have his trust. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Dave Gaskin uh, for his production work tonight and helping me navigate the airways and making me sound like I know what I'm doing, if that's uh, if that's possible. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed stretching your mind a little. Wasn't too painful, was it? If you do have any comments about tonight's show, you can drop me a line, if you wish, at zland, Z-L-A-N-D, at simpatico.ca. That's my email address, at the Z-Land Communications News Network. And I do want to thank you for listening, and you have been listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett and I'm Victor Vigiani. Good night.